Let's turn again then to the book of Ruth and chapter 1. Page 306. And uh, the words of Naomi to her daughters in verse 13. Sorry, in verse 12. Now, we didn't read these particular verses. But it's at the border of the promised land, and uh, Naomi turns round to her daughters-in-law and says this to them, Turn back, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. For it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And it's just especially these words at the end of the verse there, where Naomi says that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I think you can tie these words in to words which we'll look at on another occasion in verse 21. When Naomi arrives in Bethlehem, she says, I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. But for us, this morning, at the end of verse 13, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, we saw uh, last Lord's Day morning how Naomi and her husband and her two sons, and I'm giving Naomi the precedence here for reasons we saw, we saw how they left Israel for Moab, um, a very short journey, although they crossed an international border. It was only a journey of 30 miles, but it was a huge journey spiritually speaking. Uh, It was a step in the wrong direction, and they left the promised land where God had promised he would look after them, even in famine, and they found themselves in a land of idolatry and godlessness. They knew that before they left, and then they experienced that. Now, we saw last Lord's Day, and I'm not going into that in detail, we saw why it was a wrong decision, and in taking it, they went against the Word of God, the express Word of God. He had commanded them to stay in the Promised Land, unless they had a special call out of it, which they did not. They also had the example of other people who had made the same mistake in the Word of God. Uh, Abraham had done it, and he was chastised for it. Isaac was going to do it, uh, leave the land in a time of famine, but God stopped him from doing it. Lot infamously chose the well-watered and fertile plains of Sodom, and he suffered chastisement for it. But in spite of all these examples, uh, they just left. They left for Moab. And as we saw, it wasn't a starvation famine. Plenty of people stayed behind in Bethlehem, including Boaz, who still seemed very well off. So it was just a case of maintaining standards, maintaining the kind of life that they were used to, and just not being willing to go through some poverty. Now, of course, you can think about that kind of thing very harshly, but if we're honest with ourselves... Perhaps it's not so far away from some decisions you've taken yourself. And maybe in doing so, you sowed the wind, and maybe you're reaping the whirlwind. So, although we're sometimes looking at the sins of God's people in passages like this, don't be dismissive of them in that kind of way. Rather, just sit openly and honestly 
before the word and in the presence of God and ask, Lord, is it I? Is that me? Now, we can't expect to step outside God's express will for our lives like that um, without experiencing God's displeasure. We just can't expect that. And um, that's what happened to this family. As she puts it herself here very graphically, the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. Or as she says later in verse 21, when she comes into Bethlehem, that God has testified against me and God has afflicted me. Now, there uh, may be something in the way she speaks that's not quite right. Yeah, we'll see that on another occasion, but in essence, it's most certainly true. God has chastised her. I gave reasons last week why, although the ultimate responsibility for this emigration was Elimelech's, we have very good reason for believing that the prime mover was Naomi herself. And it's her God really deals with in the book. And it's her that God really chastises. And what I want to look at this morning with you is the chastisement that comes into the family. Chastisement is the word that we normally use. Uh, perhaps it's not as commonly used now as it used to be. So perhaps it's more straightforward if we just think in terms of God's discipline or God's training. We're told in Hebrews that every single child that God receives into his family by faith, by adoption, he disciplines. If the discipline of the Lord is not there, the writer to the Hebrews says, we're not really sons and daughters. We should all know the training of God. We should know his discipline in our lives. Now, discipline is a painful thing, but we need to remember, uh, first of all, that it is a means of grace it's a means of grace. And that's God's general discipline in our lives, as well as discipline that may be formally exercised through the church. It's a means of grace. It's there to teach us something. It's there to humble us. We all know that. Uh, God handling us in such a way that humbles us. Uh, but humbles us for a reason. It humbles us to open out our hearts and to open out our minds to make us teachable people. In other words, he's humbling us to teach us and teaching us with a view to being obedient to himself, which was the problem in the first place. I mean, it's disobedience that brings chastisement. Now, chastisement is not fun for anybody. It's not fun to the person who gives it properly. It's not fun for the person who receives it. But it's necessary. It's needful. The writer to the Hebrews says that afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, there are so many examples of this in the Bible that it would just be impossible to, uh, to take them all. We sometimes even sing examples of it. Uh, a text that we commonly quote is that it was good for me that I was afflicted. And it's David who says this. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Now, it's all in there. The affliction that he's talking about, there is a chastisement sent by God. And he said, before that, I went astray. But now, he says, I keep your word. The passage that we read earlier in Hebrews 12 is what they sometimes call the locus classicus. It's the classical passage dealing with chastisement. Some of you probably know the passage very well. And there the writer says that no chastisement, while we're experiencing it, is pleasant or joyful. He says it is painful. But he goes on to say that if we are exercised by it, it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Uh, just to, to, to give it to you, he says, No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
you know, the peaceable fruit of righteousness means righteousness itself. In other words, righteousness is the peaceable fruit. So afterwards, when it's done its work, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I want you to notice, uh, by the way, that that does emphasize using chastisement well. Um, those who have been exercised or trained by it. In other words, if we, if we recognize God's dealing with us in the chastisement, as we will, as we will, God, God will see to it that we do, although it takes a, sometimes takes a little while. But when we recognize it, we are exercised by it, we are trained by it, and we discover the benefit and the blessing of walking faithfully and obediently before God. Chastisement is a means of grace. Now, there's something important to remember about chastisement, and I I just want to to state it clearly before we look at Naomi. And that's just this. I suppose it should be obvious to to us anyway, that chastisement is carefully measured out by God in his wisdom. It is always measured, measured correctly, God never chastises us more or less than we need. It's important to remember that. I mean, the writer to the Hebrews says, uh, don't despise God's chastening and don't faint under it. These are two possibilities. You could, by despising it, you could just consider it lightly or uh, uh, brush it off or um, resist it. There's many ways in which you can despise it. Fainting under it means to kind of say, well, I can't take this and I can't cope with it. Uh, Don't do it like that. Don't respond to God's dealings like that, he says, but rather be exercised by use it, recognize it, use it well in such a way that you're turned into obedience. Now, God will see to it that uh, we eventually do that. We use it well. Um, Hebrews also says that our fathers corrected us, our fathers according to the flesh, and we respected them. How much more we should respect the father of our spirits. He says that our fathers chastised us as seemed best to them. In other words, they didn't always know exactly, perhaps, to what extent they should chastise. Maybe sometimes they got it wrong. Maybe some of you here can say that you experienced that. Some here had too little chastisement. Some maybe had too much. But he says, God always chastises us for our profit. In other words, God knows exactly how to chastise in the right way. He chastises us profitably, and God sees to it that the end is secured. In other words, that we do walk righteously. That's what I mean by his chastisement being measured. It's never too much and it's never too little. It secures its objective all the time. Now, if it is measured out like that, um, something follows. And that's just this, that um, he takes account of what our sins actually are. Chastisement, God's chastisement has respect to the severity of our sin. It's severity in itself. The shorter catechism reminds us that some sins are uh, in themselves far more heinous or heinous than other sins. We all know that. He also weighs the degree of our privilege when we committed that sin, the responsibility that we carried when we committed that sin. He also weighs the level of our Christian experience when we committed that sin. I mean, you would do that yourself, wouldn't you? In dealing with your own children, you would consider all these things. How how bad is what they've actually done? You make an assessment of that. No, you could get that wrong, but God never does. That'll become important later because sometimes you think that God is very harsh in his judgment, but he's actually not. You would also consider your children, well, 
to what extent uh, did they know that they shouldn't do this? Um, If it is your oldest son or daughter, perhaps you would consider it more severely too. Or the age they're at, you would consider all these things. And when we look at it that way, you'll discover in the Bible that very often God's chastisement, and, and here goes, this is not so pleasant, but you'll discover that God's chastisement is often more painful than you would expect it to be until you look harder and more closely. For example, uh, let's just take some well-known examples. There was Moses' exclusion from the promised land, something he anticipated for so long, and God suddenly barred him from entrance to the land of promise. And you know why? Because he lost his temper. And he said what he shouldn't have said to the Lord's people. To us, it seems severe. But there was the importance of who he was. He was the leader of God's people. And there was also his experience. He was a man who had been 40 years taught by God in the wilderness. He was a man who knew God well, and God had respect to that, but it's primarily the importance of who he is, and God dealt with him accordingly. There's the other example in David's life of Uzzah, who stretched out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant when it was going to fall. It was being carried by oxen on a cart, The oxen stumbled, and the cart was in danger of toppling over, and Uzzah put out his hand to steady it, and God struck Uzzah dead. Um, We're told in the scripture that David was angry that day. He called the name of the place where that happened a breach upon Uzzah because he felt that God had dealt harshly with Uzzah. And uh, famously, the procession stopped. This was the procession, you'll remember, that was carrying the ark up to Jerusalem. The procession stopped and everyone went home, solemnized. David went home angry. But three months later, he repeated the experiment as a chastened man. He discovered that the death of Uzzah was his fault, as well as Uzzah's fault. Uzzah was a Levite, and he should have known better himself. He was a privileged man too. But David was the king of Israel, and he was a prophet of God. And he, he, had, he had to know the word well. It was the constitution of his kingship. He should have seen to it that they had carried the ark of God in the right way. He had a responsibility to lead the people. Both Uzzah and David had great privilege and great responsibility, especially David. And the chastisement upon Uzzah was really more of a chastisement upon David. And it was so severe because of who they were. The thousands of people around looked to them, and therefore God dealt more heavily with them. The last example is the better-known example from the life of David. It's too grim to recount in its fullness, but we just know it as his double sin of adultery and murder and the shameful attempt to cover up his adultery, which culminated in murder. David lost the child that was born from that adultery. David eventually uh, lost his favored son, Absalom, We fear for eternity as well as in time. And of course, he witnessed to see his family fragment and rebel against himself because God announced, God announced through the prophet Nathan that the sword would not leave his own family. Why? Because of who he was. A teacher of God's people because of his experience. I mean, this is the man who had written Psalms. This is the man who had counseled people in Christianity. This is the man who, who, who was responsible for the, for the leading of the people of God and the gravity of the offense itself. The death of Uriah the Hittite, 
A man who had come into God's kingdom from the outside had a tight. Uh, and this was so repugnant that David would treat the convert like that. Adultery and murder. And God hates these things. I think the moral there is that we're to fear the discipline of God. I suppose we can fall into a few errors in connection with discipline. We can faint under it and say, well, there's no getting out of this, and I'm doomed. Uh, I'm doomed. I'm just going to walk under a terribly dark shadow for the rest of my life. You mustn't approach it like that. But nonetheless, we discover, as Jeremiah says, that it is a fearful, evil, and bitter thing to sin. And um, God's chastisement, it is a chastisement, yes, it's not a punishment, it's a fatherly chastisement, but it can be sore. It can be sore. And if we deliberately walk outside of God's revealed will, we can expect that. Now, God knows and God judges. Uh, you needn't say to yourself, oh, well, I'm... I'd better be careful of taking any single step in case I take a wrong step. No, it's not like that. This discipline comes on you when you are walking willfully outside the will of God. It's not, matter of, not a matter of making a mistake as such. It's a matter of willfully walking outside the will of God. Now, the reason I emphasize this is because in Naomi's case here, the discipline is more severe than you would expect. All right, they've left Israel, and they shouldn't have done it. Thirty miles into Moab, just for a better standard of life. She loses her husband, and then she loses her two sons. She's left a widow and her two daughters-in-law with us, with her, in poverty. Why? Well, I wonder if the answer lies again just in the public nature of what they did and in the power of a bad example. Stop to think for a moment of what the effect is on this man, the effect is on everybody of this man and his wife and two sons leaving Bethlehem. Everyone's groaning there. They're feeling the pain and feeling the hardship, but they're praying and waiting upon the Lord. None of them have stepped outside the will of God like that. It's not as though there's some sin as such going on. There's a famine on the land because of general sin, that's true. But their duty, as we saw, was to stay, see it through. How many people had a broken heart when they saw Elimelech and Naomi pack up. If they had all followed that example, who'd be left in Bethlehem? Nobody. Nobody. How many hearts failed them when Naomi left? How many people thought, God's not real? How many people in Bethlehem thought, well, if they're leaving, I mean, what good was God for them, really? I mean, we, we looked at them as Christian examples and look at them. Look at them. Their God's not real. How many people were tempted to say, well, maybe we should all do that then. Let's just all pack up and go. You see, when you think about it like that, it's not just such a small thing, is it? It's not even just their own sin. Most of our sins aren't anyway. I suppose there are some sins that we can sin in private, but most of our sins are more public than we realize. And wouldn't it be a good thing if we thought more about our decisions in that kind of way? Get a job offer. Pays you £4,000 more. There's a better house, a nicer community. But you're going to miss your church. You're going to lose it. The preaching of the word is just not going to be the same. And off you go. What are the consequences of that decision? It's quite easy to justify your move. But if you're listening, really, if you're listening, really, I'm quite sure God is telling you to rethink. No, God deals with us in such a way that we learn 
and uh, learn to fear. You see, the discipline that God gives to the wayward is also to us. It's a message to us. Is that not true? Um, You remember when Ananias and Sapphira sinned. And this is the New Testament church, and maybe that's useful because some people mistakenly say, well, look, the the examples you took were from the Old Testament. Well, I hope as Reformed uh, Presbyterian people, Reformed and Presbyterian, we should be able to see the Bible differently. We we can't be just chopping off the Old Testament like that, as, as some people do. But just for the sake of it, it's useful to take that example from the New Testament. And Ananias and Sapphira, who, of course, um, when people were selling their, their possessions and uh, bringing their money to the feet of the apostles, that was, a, that was just a free choice. Nobody constrained them to do that. But they decided um, that, that they would get the praise for doing that without the commitment and the cost of doing it. So they, they, they sold their property, but they kept back a, a good slice of the proceeds for themselves. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit guided Peter to see that they were not honest. They lied. They, significantly, they were not judged and chastised because uh, they kept back part of the proceeds. The apostle said, you were at liberty to do that. You didn't need to bring all the money here at the feet of the apostles. But because they lied, they didn't tell the truth. They, they made themselves out to be better than they really were. And God took away their lives solemnly. Ananias, in the presence of the congregation, just fell down dead. And Sapphira, a short while afterwards, not knowing what had happened to her husband, she fell dead in the middle of the congregation. Now, um, put yourself back in that congregation, would you, for a time in Jerusalem. Put yourself back in the congregation. How shocked you'd have been that morning. How shocked. It's not necessary, necessary to believe that Ananias and Sapphira were ungodly people. It's not necessary to believe that at all. What they did was tell a lie. Have you ever done that as a Christian? And we're told on that day that great fear fell upon the church. Was that a bad thing? No, it was a good thing. It was a good thing that the fear of God fell upon the church. I've no doubt at all that's, that's one of the great things that's lacking in the church. As we speak today, in contemporary church circles, the fear of God is well nigh absent. But the fear of God fell on the church. And what happened to the church? It grew. You would normally think it was a pretty bad advert for two people to be killed in the church. In the presence of God. It wasn't. The church grew. So the way God was going to deal with Naomi wasn't just going to speak to Naomi and her daughters-in-law. I was going to speak to Bethlehem too when she came back and they said, is this Naomi? God speaks to her through three funerals and two weddings. The first funeral is her own husband. You get the feeling that he died fairly soon. The narrative is terse, very concise, but you can't escape the feeling that Elimelech has hardly set foot in the place when he loses his own life. If he had a deathbed, I'm sure it was tinged with regret. After all, we can't escape the fact that in stepping out to Moab, he was denying his own name. Elimelech is an interesting name. It means that God is my king. God is my king. But Elimelech, when you took the decision to move to Moab, God wasn't your king. Or at least, you weren't obedient to his kingship. You were listening partly to yourself, and you were also listening to your wife, not to God. How important it is to listen to God and to be guided by the express revelation of his word. He had that. He had express teaching in the Word of God, and he just went against it. But so do you. 
So do you. And for that matter, some of you could be denying the very names that you wear yourself. I mean, maybe God has given you the name John, which means grace. Do you know the grace of God in your life? Some of you possibly have names that you don't know are rich in biblical meaning. Girls are often today called Zoe, which is a lovely name, which is Greek for life. But are you denying the God who gives life? Are you choosing death by the way in which you're choosing to live? So, so you too can be denying the very name on your forehead. You could be denying the name that was mentioned or spoken when you were baptized and received into the fellowship of the people of God. You're denying it. Well, so was Elimelech denying it. And it's a solemn thought that you have the name Christian. You're called a Christian. But are you behaving like a Christian? Are you honoring that name? Alexander the Great, once when he was inspecting his soldiers, uh, he came to one of them and asked him, what's your name? And the soldier said, Alexander, same name as himself. And he said, well, start living up to your name then. Because the man just uh, wasn't what he should have been. Is God telling us to live up to the name of Christian? which really means to take up our cross and to go outside the camp and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Is our life self-denial? Is it Christ-centered? Are we following him? Now, whatever Elimelech's death said to himself, you may think that's strange, but that's working on the assumption that he saw it coming, which he might not have, But whatever it said to himself, and death can be a chastisement to us when we see it coming. Very much so, it can be. Whatever it said to him, the real message was to to the family and to Naomi especially. Remember what I said last week, the book's about her. Elimelech disappears in chapter 1, verse 3. So, although it's his leading responsibility, um, he disappears. Okay, The book is not about him, but the book is about her. What was the message with Elimelech's death? Well, what would you think the message was? I mean, think about it yourself. Well, surely one message in that death is right now, Naomi and your two sons go back where you came from. Go back to the land of promise. Let this death be a lesson to you that you may choose something, but it may appear and work out very differently. Go back, go back. It's not difficult to go back. It's only 30 miles. Some of you travel longer than that to come here every day, every Sabbath day. There's at least two people who travel more than 30 miles to come here on the Sabbath. That's how short the journey is. It's not big. Just go back. But they didn't go back. The sons stay. And not only do they stay, but they put down woods. Shortly afterwards, they get married, and they marry two Moabites women. Um, you can't help but get the feeling that the sons are making the choice the father did. And that's no surprise either, is it? No surprise. The second commandment tells us that our Sins are visited on our children. And uh, we sometimes wonder what that means, but, well, I think this explains what it means, really. Lot chose Sodom. He got out of it, but his family didn't, really. You see his two daughters managing to escape with him, but what do they do? It's so bad, I can hardly bring myself to say it. Incest. Significantly, the incest between Lot and the daughters uh, were what produced uh, the Moabites. There's something probably in that too. But our iniquity is visited upon our children. That is actually said as something to check us and to stop us. In other words, don't just think of your choice in going to Moab. Think of what might happen to your family in Moab. So when we choose it, We choose for our children too. But what do we make of these two weddings? Mahlon 
Maris Ruth, and Hylion, Maris Orpa. What do we make of them? Well, here I think we do have to be careful, because I don't think we know enough. It all depends on whether these two women were converting or not. It really comes down to that. The, the, the judgment that we pass on it depends on whether these two women were converted or not. Now, we could use that as a reason just to pass on and say nothing, but I think, in fact, we should use it as an opportunity to cover all eventualities. What I mean is this. First of all, let's assume that they married these Moabite girls as they were, wedded to their culture and wedded to their gods. And there may be something in the way that Naomi tests them later that may lead us to think that 10 years earlier, that's what had happened. She says, go back to your gods, go back to your people. Maybe 10 years earlier, when the sons had got married in the first place, that that's who they still were. That may be. Now, if that was so, these things apply. The word of God tells the people of God not to marry those who are not God's people usually described as the Canaanites, because that's the people in the vicinity where they lived. Now, there's nothing racist in that. Right from the beginning, God's word made plain that anybody could join God's people. It didn't matter who you were or where you were from, you could join God's people. So God's, even God's calling of this race was not racist. And, of course, if they converted, then that would be fine. It wouldn't be wrong to marry these Moabites women. And the same is still true for us today. God expects us, as God's people, to marry those who are God's people. I think that should be so self-evident that it would hardly require proof. Certainly, Second Corinthians 6 tells us not to be unequally yoked to those who are unbelievers. And some people say, well, that's not a reference to marriage. Well, I would say in response to that, that whatever else it's a reference to, it must be a reference to marriage because there is no closer yoke in life than marriage. There isn't. I mean, there simply isn't where the two become one. I mean, how could it, not, how could it be said in that text, um, don't play football with an unconverted person, but it's okay to marry one? Do you see my point? In other words, whatever it includes, it includes that. It stands to reason that those who love the Lord should marry those who love the Lord. What evidence do you require that people love the Lord? Well, just their profession. In other words, they must say so in word and in life. In Israel, if a person was to join the people of God, if they were male, they were circumcised, and they would be admitted to the Passover. Now, if the two sons just decided to marry the Moabite woman as they were, that must have been a grief of mine to Naomi. Just as it was when Esau married two Hittite women. Strange thing is that Esau was trying to, to wangle his way back into the affections of his mother and father there. You, you remember from Genesis that Esau, Esau's mother and father were Isaac and Rebekah. Esau's lifestyle was alienating him from the parents uh, but he wanted to wangle his way back in, and he thought if he could present himself as a steadier type of guy, like Jacob, it might work. So he married two Hittite women. Well, well, that was a mistake. His parents didn't want him to marry twice in the first place, and neither did they most certainly want him to marry Hittite women. And we're told in the Scripture that they were a grief of mind to Isaac and to Rebekah. Um, and maybe when these marriages took place that both these women were a grief of mind to Naomi. Now, you could, of course, say to me, well, it's important to recognize that Ruth came good. Well, that's true. Ruth came good. Um, but that's never a rule in making choices. I mean, God does overrule. Absolutely so. But, but we don't kind of uh, go back retrospectively and say, well, it was okay then. <laughs> to take David again as an example, David's adultery with Bathsheba, which child came from that union? Solomon came from that union. So is it okay then to read back and say, all right then, well, that's fine. Of course it's not fine. 
That's an example of God taking serious sin and just through grace bringing, bringing something marvelous out of it. That, that doesn't create a new rule by which we walk. Absolutely not. I, I, I did once hear a, a person say, sadly it was from a pulpit, that he wouldn't criticize what David had done because Solomon had come from it. And I thought to myself, well, dear me, that's not a right thing to say. It's also important to remember that Orpah didn't come good. She seemed maybe to have professed something, but certainly she didn't come good. But in any case, a rule of life is what God says, not what might happen. Now, at the point at which... um, But sorry, the, the, the other possibility is that, of course, the two girls did profess faith, in which case it would have been right and lawful to marry. So that, that, that's important to remember. I, I don't think we can pronounce on that, although I, I do have the feeling later from the way in which Naomi talks to the daughters-in-law that she has a suspicion that at least one of them still may be dwelling in darkness. But at the point at which these two sons die, the situation is really black for Naomi. And I want you to remember that it's really, really black And even when she came back to Bethlehem, she said that I left here full, she said, and I've come back empty. Yeah, her husband, gone. Her two sons, gone. A stranger in a strange land, two Midianite women, a Moabite woman under her roof, and she's now a widow, in fact, three widows in one house. That's not a good condition to be in. We're used to unemployment benefits a social security net. They've got none of that. There were real provisions in Israel for the widow. There there was um, generous provision in in comparison with other countries in Moab. You're on your own. Nobody cares for the widow in Moab. How often she sat and wished she had never come. How she regretted ever either suggesting it or perhaps badgering or influencing her husband to come. How often she probably said with Jacob, all these things are against me. How often she probably said with David, has God forgotten to be gracious? But um, little does she know, though, what God is yet going to do. Um, Through all this, God is working in Naomi, working through her for her own benefit, for the benefit of her daughter-in-law, and indeed for the benefit of Israel, and indeed for the benefit of the whole world. Now, at the end of the day, she is chastised, and although she says the hand of the Almighty is against me, that hand, that, that hand that wields the rod is the same hand that wipes the tear from your eye. I want you to remember that. It's the same hand And there's not a drop being given to Naomi that's not necessary. He does not willingly afflict the children of men, we're told in Scripture. And God is seeing to it that she's going to be brought back to her proper place, because that's what God wants, you see. It's what God wants with us all, to be brought back to her proper place. It's not fun on God's side. It's not a game either. The handling of this sensitive thing, this fragile thing that we call the soul, is something that can only be done by God himself who created it. He created you, he created me, we have our distinctive souls, our distinctive personalities, and he handles this fragile woman in a way that makes it, makes it look sometimes as though he's going to break her, but he's making her, not breaking her. And I think even in her darkness there are some tokens of mercy. Just quickly what they are. First of all, she's kept. God is the widow's help, and she would have experienced that in Moab. And you know, although she's being stripped, and I think that's what she means when she says, I left full and I'm coming home, and she's being stripped, she's losing everything she had. The things that were so big for her, when she went for a standard of life, husband gone, sons gone, possessions eroding, What she's discovering is that she only needs God, really. 
And I think in all our chastisements, that's what God is teaching us, that we really need him and we only need him. And without him, we have nothing. And she's learning that in her chastisement. She's discovering in Moab that God is still looking after her. God cares for her and he will never leave her. And neither will he forsake her. I think she's also discovering as these 10 years pass that Ruth is not just a surprising daughter-in-law, but more than that. Um, It becomes very evident later on as Boaz says to Ruth, may the Lord repay your work and may a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Now, it's quite clear by the time Naomi comes back to Bethlehem that already Ruth has found refuge under the wing of the Lord God of Israel. And I'm sure there were signs of that as the years were passing. Um, Ruth would be like a beacon of light shining in that home, that God is still not just with me, but he's working You know, we shouldn't despair. I mean, sometimes families maybe take bad decisions like that and we feel, all right, that's the end of that. He's married a Moabitess. Yes, but God was bigger than that. Could have been a disaster, yes, but it wasn't a disaster. And we've just got to keep looking and trusting and believing. And if we do... You'll see a light shining somewhere. You'll see a light shining. The other thing that sustains it eventually is good news from a far country. No, it's not that far away. Shouldn't have left it in the first place. But she hears the news that in Israel the famine is over. That's a sign that God has raised a judge and that the people have repented and turned to God. This time it's absolutely her decision to make. You'll notice that. It's her decision. She can't turn to Elimelech and say, Elimelech, we've got to go back. She can't say to her sons, Luke, let's turn up. and go. She, she now has to take the decision. It's as though after 10 years, God is saying, look, you were the prime mover 10 years ago to come here. Right now, you're, you're not just moving the thing. It is your decision and it is your responsibility. And Naomi knows she's got to go back. She's got to go back. She's got to return from where she fell. I will arise, the prodigal son said, and I will go to my father. And Ruth decides to return. And she's going to take, or at least her daughters-in-law are going to try to come with her. May the Lord bless these thoughts on his word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, when your hand goes out against us and whenever the rod is in your hand, give us grace to kiss it and to recognize it and to know that your dealings with us are always in grace. Deliver us from hard thoughts. Help us to recognize that you are always in Christ, our Father, who is in heaven. And we pray that even now, as we look back, some of us over 5, 10, 20, 30 years Christian experience, that we can begin to understand how these things that appeared so difficult and so harsh and so hard were used by you in bringing us into the paths of righteousness. We look forward to that day when all the scales will fall away, when we will no longer see, as it were, through a glass darkly, but we will see face to face, and we will recognize the depth and the greatness of your love in our chastisements. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our last uh, singing is Psalm 89 on page 347. Page 347. 
and verse 29. This is um, speaking of uh, Christ. He is in, he's in verse 27 here as that God's firstborn, elevated to a higher kingship than any other king. In verse 29, his seed, I by my power, will make forever to endure. And as the days of heaven, his throne shall stable be and sure. But if his children shall forsake my laws and go astray, and in my judgments shall not walk but wander from my way, if they my laws break and do not keep my commandments, what does he say? Is he going to destroy them? No. I'll visit then their faults with rods, their sins with chastisements. Yet I'll not take my love from him. Now, is this not interesting? It's, it somehow relates uh, the, the love that, well, as I understand it anyway, it's relating the love and care that God has for his people to his commitment to his own son. As much as to say that it's part of his love for Christ and his duty to his Christ to maintain Christ's people. Yet I'll not take my love from him, nor false my promise make. My covenant I'll not break, nor change what with my mouth I speak. How blessed a thing, friends, to be in Christ. How blessed a thing. Uh, verses uh, 29 to 34 then. And uh, we sing to the tune Tiburton and we stand to sing. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.